Good morning. It is uh, really good to be here, as uh, Pastor said, um, homegrown, so it's good to be back home. Um, on the chance that there's anybody here that I don't know, my name is David. It's good to be here. Um, and yeah, you know, I'm really excited about being here. Um, I've actually been looking forward to this for a while. Uh, when I got the call from Reverend Otis, it was like February. I was like, yes, New Mission better be on it, booking people 10 months in advance <laughs> to come in. It was like, wow, that's pretty cool. <laughs> um, you know, and before we get into anything serious, man, if y'all don't do anything else, y'all need to see Roya's shoes before you leave, because I don't, oh my God. You know, that is the devil, because I couldn't even focus and worship. I'm like, how is she standing in those things? Like, oh my God. Ugh. I mean, all of the shoe game up here is, ugh. Do it. Yes. Bless the Lord. <laughs> it's New Year's. Yes. <laughs> um, God, we made it through 2017. We got through our first Trump presidency. <laughs> first year. God, it is the last day of 2017. And, you know, statistically, if I know people, um, this place is going to be packed tonight. You know, the ushers will be on standby with the extra chairs folded in the back. Um, the media ministry is going to have to make sure the camera's on so people can see downstairs. You know, all of these people pack in and flood in, you know, about this time every single year. And, you know, um, I was like, why is that? Why is like there's this sudden spike in church attendance, like not just at New Mission, but across all these different places, you know, um, when we get to New Year's and, you know, I was just thinking about it. And then, you know, nothing deep, but I couldn't fall asleep last night. I'm like, God, daggone it. You know, every time I got to be up in the morning, I can't get to sleep. So I'm 3.30 in the morning, just sitting in bed. So, you know, as you do, you get on Facebook, you know, and just pass the time. And I was like, well, maybe the Lord just had something for us there because, you know, I kept seeing these memes and I was like, you know, that a preach, you know? <laughs> so I'm just like, um, in the middle of the night, like I'm getting this stuff together. I'm like, I wonder if I can get this to Miss Kathleen and Mr. Rodney, see if they can get that up. And there was one that um, made me think about what we're gonna be talking about today. Um, like I said, there'll be tons of people packed in here. You got that first one. You know, my goal for 2018 is to accomplish the goals of 2017, which I should have done in 2016, because I promised them in 2014 and planned them in 2013. <laughs> and it's this funny thing because, you know, all these people come in here um, to signify this big changing of the year where, you know, just one digit on the calendar is going to change. And we have these big expectations that something new and something big and something grand is going to happen. But um, there's something really beautiful about that. I think it is indicative of um, a particular type of hope that people have. Um, a very specific type of hope that shows its face about this time every year. And hope is beautiful. Hope is powerful. I think hope is what got, like, our people, you know, African-Americans through a lot of hard times, you know, just the hope that something has got to be better. Um, and, you know, you don't even have to be black. You don't have to be a believer in God to have this hope that just because the calendar year is going to change, that something in your life is going to change. But as you you know, kind of see from this meme, you know, it's kind of onto something. We tend to come in here expecting, though, some of the same things to change. Some of us made these New Year's resolutions back in 2013 that we're still trying to work on, you know, five years later. That's cool, <laughs> you know. Um, 
or maybe there's some things that we've been praying for or hoping for rather um, since maybe 2012, 11, 1990, 80. <laughs> and, it, and it just stirred this conversation in me about you know our relationship with hope and how dangerous it is because as, as beautiful as it is, it can also be a doorway. It can be a doorway to disappointment. Because at some point, you start to realize that you've had these same hopes, these same dreams, these same wishes. And even though you keep coming in here and we keep doing these grand things and we hold each other's hands and we step over into the new year, or you know, we, we, we write down all the things that we don't like and we bury them in coffins, or sometimes you know, some churches do these grand things and they write down all the stuff that they wish for and they put them on balloons and let them go. We do all of these things hoping that you know, this is going to signify this is it, this year is going to be great, and then you realize realize that you've been hoping for the same thing for 10, 12, 15, 20 years. And if you're not careful, what hope will do is have the reverse and negative effect of what it was supposed to, and it'll drive you insane. And you'll get tired of coming to this place. You'll get tired of celebrating this big crossing over into this new year because you'll realize just because the calendar changes doesn't necessarily mean that anything in your life is changing as well. Ladies and gentlemen, I am the bearer of bad news. <laughs> Good to be here. Um, but what I've noticed is that people can respond to this in two different ways. Um, I've seen many people or heard their stories and had conversations with folks who've given up on church altogether, given up on God altogether. Because we come into places like this and we hear these really nice, hopeful, inspiring, this is gonna be your year type of messages from preachers all over the world. But if it doesn't translate back into my everyday life, at some point, some people have worked too long and too hard to give up hope, and some people are saying, this isn't for me. So I don't want you to lose hope, and I don't wanna be the bearer of bad news today. But I do wanna submit that maybe we need to change our relationship with hope that we need to change our, our expectations. As a matter of fact, that's the big idea of today. How to manage your expectations of what we hope for. And once we adjust our expectations of hope, we adjust our expectations of God. And when we adjust our expectations of God, we'll see how that adjusts our expectations of our self. So before we go any farther, um, we'd like to invite God into our time. Um, God, thank you for the opportunity to talk to your people. Thank you for the opportunity to be here, um, to share in this celebration as we prepare for a new thing. Um, I just believe that there may be people here who need to hear a word from you. Um, they don't need to hear a word from me, so push me out of the way, God. Um, and, and just allow us to understand what is this hope that we're supposed to have as we prepare to enter into this new year and this new thing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. You know, as I was thinking about that idea, there was one particular scripture in the Bible that I couldn't help but wonder um, that we needed to talk about. And you find that in Joshua chapter 5. If you um, want to read along with that, you can turn to it. We'll start in verse 1. Um, I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Version um, Bible. 
Joshua chapter 5. In the New American Standard Version, you will find these words. Now it came about when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed, that their hearts melted. There was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. You could say they lost hope. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make for yourselves flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. So Joshua made himself flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeah Haraloth. This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, all of them died in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt. For all the people who came out were circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the sons of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, that is, the men of war who came out of Egypt perished because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord to whom the Lord had sworn that he would not let them see the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Their children, whom he raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised along the way. You may be seated. How many times can you say circumcised in one, <laughs> one scripture? You know, reading this, there are so many things that just stand out to me that I think are worth mentioning. The dangerous thing, especially for those of us who maybe grew up in the church, is we grew up hearing these stories and they become just that stories. So we already know the beginning, the middle, and the end, and it's hard to really empathize with the characters that we're talking about and understand the weightiness of what we're talking about, like experiencing it in a fresh, new way. You gotta understand, what we're talking about, in case you don't know, are Israel, who had been designated as the, the people of God, the children of God. And, you know, right before this particular event, they had been in just cruel conditions in Egypt. Um, like, uh, geographically, we think that this was about 400 years of just slavery. Um, very similar, if you just want to imagine, like, the slavery that happened in America, just being in these really cruel conditions at the hand of Egypt. And they had this hope that God was going to do something for them. As a matter of fact, the hope was backed up by things that God said himself. He promised them, I am going to send, you know, a way for you to be delivered out of the hand of Egypt. And additionally, I'm going to move you to a new place. So God does tell Israel, I'm going to take you somewhere that you want to go. And this place, I'm telling you, is gorgeous. It, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's going to be great. So the people are excited. We now have this hope that something is going to get better than where we are right now. And so what they do is they send out 12 spies to scout out. Go see this place. So the 12 spies, they leave, they go, and they discover this place that God talks about, it exists. It's beautiful, and it does flow with milk and honey, and we would love to be there, but there's one problem. It's already inhabited. There's already people there, you know, and, and these people, they look strong. They look like they can outnumber us, and, and though we would love to be at this place, we think God got the location right, 
But does he know that we just can't come into their land? Like they're not going to let, I don't think that we can, we can fight this battle. I don't think that we can take this land. So they go back, they give the report to the whole nation. There were 12 people that went out. 10 of them are like, look, it's great, but don't get your hopes up. Because I don't think that we have what it takes to go to the place that God says that we are going to. Only two people, Joshua and Caleb, are like, no. If God said that we can go, then we can go. But because 10 of them, the majority is saying, I don't think that we can do it. The people of Israel are like, uh, I, I, I guess we can't do it. And so God gets upset. He's like, who are you? to take the report of these 10 and not what I told you to do. I told you I would make a way for you to go into the land, but you've looked at the situation, you looked at what you could see, and because you couldn't figure out how I was gonna do it, now you're doubting what I told you to do. So now let me show you what I can do. So since you're fearful, I'm gonna go ahead and we're gonna put a plan in place. So the, the plan starts happening. They, they do get delivered from the hands of um, Pharaoh, they go on this journey, and you know, you've seen the Prince of Egypt, you, you know, part the Red Sea, run through, all of that good stuff, and now they're free from Pharaoh, but now they have to get to the promised land, and so God, you know, being who he is, he's like, um, you know, since you're so fearful, you know, there's a straight shot to get from Egypt to the promised land, and that's going to take you about 11 days, pause, now that's the, the quick route, now th this is that part of the story where we've heard it, so it's like, okay, you know, 11 days, that's quick. 11 days, let's be clear, is not quick. I wouldn't want to spend 11 hours with some of you people, you know, driving, you know, from one city to another, let alone walking for 11 days in the desert. Deodorant doesn't exist. And you got that one person that just, you know, they, they talk and, you know, you don't want to be around them. And, you know, Roya can't walk in those shoes for 11 days. Oh, my God. You know, can you imagine? It was already going to be a tough journey for 11 days, but God said, because you were fearful, you know, there are people in this route that I don't want you to be afraid, so we're going to avoid those people, and we're going to take you roundabout so you can get to the promised land. So, you know, now we start telling ourselves these church-isms, you know, the things that you tell yourself to keep yourself encouraged but didn't necessarily come from God, but it sounds good. So, you know, we do that. So can you imagine, the journey was supposed to take 11 days, and here we are at day 13, and you start Start telling yourself, well, you know, it was supposed to take 11, you know, we had day 13, but surely God is about to take us into a new place. And then you get to day 22, and you've been walking double the time that you were supposed to. Roya has taken off her shoes by this point, guys. And, and it's like, listen, we've doubled the amount of time, but you know, I got a feeling. I had a dream last night. The Lord told me we was going, and y'all got excited, and then you got to day 50. What happened to your dreams, Harry? <laughs> I thought the Lord said that we were going to get there. And then can you imagine day 365? And you're like, okay, it should have taken 11 days, but we've been walking for a year. And then they grabbed hands and they crossed over into the new year. And they were like, hey, this is going to be the year that we make it. And then two years pass. Three years pass. Four years pass. And you start thinking crazy talk like, we would have been better staying where we were. In slavery. <laughs> in Egypt. I mean, at least then we knew where our next meal was coming from. At least then we weren't on this journey with these fools. 
Elisa, I mean, does Moses not have the GPS? I mean, did you not update the Google Maps? Why is it taking us so long to get to where we need to go? And then six years pass, and people start dying off. Like, and you start to wonder, did you hear correctly? Because God said, I'm going to take you into the promised land. But you see people who heard the promise and they're dying before they even make it. And it makes you wonder, am I going to make it to the promised land? You start getting sick. Your body starts breaking down. How do you keep the hope? See, some of y'all might not be able to relate to the Bible story, but I believe that some of us have some things that we've been hoping for, we've been praying for, things that people might not even know that's been a personal struggle for you for years. Some of y'all been dealing with some of the same crap for 20, 30, 40 years. You know, there are some Bible stories that, you know, we wonder, was it allegory? Was it supposed to be metaphorical? You know, I'm not sure if this Bible story actually took place. I would believe that, I can believe that this Bible story took place because I've seen with my own eyes people doing the same thing over and over and over and over again, year after year, running, but on a hamster wheel. They're running so fast, but they never get to a new place. You know what it's like? You know what it's like to be in that relationship? You know what it's like to be in that relationship that just keeps bugging you down? You know what it's like to be in that marriage? People don't even understand how much of a struggle it is for you to go home and see that man every day. You know what it's like to raise that child and you put everything you had in it and you're holding on to promises that told you if you raise them up the right way, they won't leave within the promise just don't seem to be coming back and you keep coming to church and you keep saying this is the year he's going to come back and it seems like it's just getting worse. Some of you have lost children to the streets. Let's be real. Some of you have seen people that you, 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 we gathered around, we gathered hands, we prayed over this person, we prayed for their healing and we say in the name of Jesus, that cancer won't take you and you looked and you saw that person take their last breath. So what do you do when you're in a place and you're running and you're running after something, but you don't seem to be getting to the spot and you see other people and you know the journey should have taken 11 days. You see other people and their relationship are taken off. You see other people and their business is taken off. You see other people and they're getting to the place and you know that you had everything right. You were walking the journey, but something still doesn't work. And so now you start to wonder what is wrong with me? And maybe I heard God incorrectly. This is the spot that Israel is in. But I think God had redefined their success. When you spent all your money at the club on New Year's Eve and forgot rent was due on the first. <laughs> I told you, it was like 3.30 in the morning. I had nothing better to do. <laughs> and I thought, maybe Israel's priority was different than God's priority at the time. Because maybe God had something bigger that he was trying to teach them. They were hoping to get to a new place physically, and God said, I'm about to do a new thing to take you to a new place spiritually. See, 
You had to learn something about me. When I tell you something, that's it, period. But since you had to look at your situation and you started placing your eyes on the land and you got distracted by the land and you got distracted by the people in the land and that allowed you to forget what I told you, now I'm gonna take you all the way around until you realize that I am God. I'm gonna take you through the wilderness. I'm going to put you in a spot where you have to realize that when I say I got you, I got you. So now you're not going to see where the next meal is coming from. But I'm going to give you something called manna. And it's just going to appear out of nowhere. Right when you think you're about to die of starvation, I'm going to give you just enough. But guess what? It's not a full spread buffet. It's just enough to keep you walking. And when you feel like you're going to die of starvation again, I'm going to give you a little bit more. And I'm going to do this for 40 years until you realize that I am God. Now we have to adjust our expectation and what we define as success. God, I believe, was less interested in the promised land. God is less interested in what's happening right now in the physical. He's interested in what you understand about him in the spiritual. But that made me think, what type of God do we serve? What type of God do we serve that would do that? See, like I said, you know, started here in New Mission. And like to understand the story of how I had to leave, you know, I don't know if I ever shared this, you know, was really nothing to do with New Mission or Baptist Church or anything like that, but everything to do with me and my relationship with that. More so my relationship with God. See. When I was a kid, you know, and my cousins, you know, we were more like brothers, sisters, we were all together, you know, and so I had this cousin, Delvin, y'all know Delvin, you know, he cute, all the girls liked him, you know, he played sports, he did everything, and he had all this stuff that he wanted to do, and, you know, his mom, Aunt Sharon, you know, she back there, she's so involved, and she wanted to keep you involved, and, you know, everything that Delvin did, I had to do, whether I wanted to do or not, you know, um, so Delvin liked to play sports. David doesn't like to play sports, but I had to do it. So Delvin played baseball, David had to play baseball. Now if you look at a uh, videotape of us playing baseball, you see all these people in the infield paying attention and seeing, and then you're like, what is that speck all the way out in the outfield, twirling around, <laughs> looking like this? That was me. And no idea what the game was going on, you know. And then Delvin played basketball, so I had to play basketball. And I remember, you know, the, the coach was trying to, like, motivate us. And he had said something like, David, you always on the bench. And I was like, I'm cool. You can leave me on the bench. That, that's fine. He put me in the game. All right. People running down to this court, and as soon as they get down there, they run back down to this hoop. I said, y'all fool's crazy. So I stand in the middle, and I just watch you run this way, and I watch you run back that way, and I watch you go back. And then we're fourth quarter, i never forget. Delvin's right there. He got the ball. He said, I'm going to throw the ball. I said, don't throw the ball. <laughs> I'm going to throw the ball to you. He throws the ball. I told you, leave me on the bench. Now, Delvin went to take karate, I had to take karate. Now listen, I told my dad, true story, he's here, he can tell you. I came home and I complained, I said, listen, 
you can't send me back to that place. Actually, I need you to come up there because they hitting me. And he actually came. <laughs> and he watched what was going on. And I remember this moment of explaining to me, it's karate. <laughs> so they're trying to teach you how to, you pay for me to get hit? <laughs> That's what this whole thing is for? So we showed up to karate once, and it had been canceled, and we didn't know, and we just roamed around. It was at Pleasant Ridge Community Center. We go downstairs, and we see this group of kids rapping, dancing, and they were doing all this stuff about God. And I was like, I don't know what that is, but how about you drop us off to the same place at the same time, he go to karate, and I go do that, <laughs> you know? Um, worked out, so I joined the God Squad. And, you know, right then sort of to kind of like see this new sort of like thing for me. The thing that I was good at was God. <laughs> I was good at uh, doing Sunday school and getting all those answers right. How many people were around for Children's Church with Reverend Summerlin? I cleaned up on some quarters and some candy bars. Like, I can tell you a Bible story like nobody else. And then, you know, I, I'm, so I'm doing this, I'm doing well in Sunday school, doing well in Children's Church, doing well in God Squad, and then, you know, I got this opportunity to speak, and I'm like only like 11, 12 years old, and I remember, like, they were like, we're gonna let you do our banquet. So I got to speak at Duke Energy Center, and I'm starting to get all these accolades, like, oh my God, like, you're good. And so I'm changing the way I dress, and I start going to school with like suits and ties, and people were like, oh my God. I remember I stopped carrying a book bag and started carrying a briefcase, and people was like calling me preacher boy and that was okay and I started to get this identity that was wrapped up in doing everything correctly doing everything the right way and I confessed this call to preach and I start writing these plays and I start um, dancing and I start doing all this stuff in the church and I'm like this golden like little preacher boy that gets to travel around and preach at all these places have you heard and it was like I'm feeling really good about doing things the right way and then you go to performing arts and it's like culture shock. <laughs> you get you, your, your world opened up to all the different things that high school has to offer, let alone a performing arts high school. <laughs> and you know, you start to see things that you in your sheltered little life had never seen. And hormones start kicking in. This little bastard called puberty, you know, <laughs> comes on in and it's like, oh my God, I'm starting to feel different. And right around 16, 17, you know, all this stuff that I have been preaching about but I had not necessarily experienced, my world is starting to get rattled. And now I'm starting to get introduced. Oh, I got friends that smoke, maybe I just wanna try that out. And you know, again, you know, hanging out at different places, going down to the Fay, I knew people skipping school. My parents are learning things in this sermon. <laughs> you know, and doing different stuff. And it was like, okay, like that's an experience. And then experimenting with sex and you know, wondering things about sexuality and all of that. And then all of a sudden, I remember like, there was this identity crisis because what I had built up and the only thing I was good at was now starting to crumble down because I wasn't living like Reverend David. And I wasn't re showing you that good Sunday school, that good kid. And that, to this point, was the only thing I had going for me. So now, <laughs> I'm back in this spot where I'm like, now what do you do? And so it, it wasn't anything about people in here, but my view of God was this man that I had to please, that I had to dress up for, but what happened when I got tired of dressing up on Sunday? 
My view of God was these rules that I had to keep, but what happened when I became the thing that you weren't supposed to be? What happened when I came into this place and, you know, you guys were great. It wasn't you, it was me. And it was, I didn't want to be Reverend David today. I didn't want to be the guy who danced. I didn't want to be called to do altar prayer. I didn't want to do all. I just needed to come and hear a word about a God who loved me. And it wasn't that that message wasn't being preached. It was I had built up this whole thing and put it out there for everybody that I needed to go somewhere where people had no idea who I was. So I end up, you know, not going to church for a while. I remember, you know, Pastor Venice reaching out. I remember being in that office and this is one time I think I got really disrespectful with them. We were in a screaming match with each other. And it's just like, I, I just couldn't take it. And so, but I do remember feeling like I couldn't walk away from God altogether. Like there was something to this God. And so I ended up going to Crossroads. And the, the thing about Crossroads is it was really big and it was dark and the lights are shining away from me, you know? And so I can sit in the back and nobody knows I preach, nobody knows I dance, nobody knows I'm this Sunday school teacher, nobody knows that I'm any, I'm just the guy with his coffee sitting in the back, just like this, <laughs> you know? And, that, and it was cool. And you know, you see all the nice people, the ushers, and you know you can get involved if you want to, but if you don't, you can just come, chill, and just be unknown. And so what happened in that time was, you know, the biggest adjustment was the music. Listen. <laughs> I love the place now, and we do got some singers, but they, there is no Terry at Crossroads. <laughs> they, they, I mean, yeah, you can clap for that. There is no Netta Suggs. There was no Debbie Hill. There, I'm like, dang, gone. But then I started listening to the words of some of the things that they were saying. And it was slowed down and contemporary. And, and, you know, the words up on the screen. And it started to settle in that we were talking about the same God New Mission had been talking about. Just a different expression. And they were singing some different songs. And I remember one, and it said, I've heard a thousand stories of what they say you're like. But I hear this tender whisper of love in the dead of night, and it tells me that you're pleased and that I'm never alone. You're a good, good father. And so what I had realized was I was now seeing God in a way that I had never seen him before. Before, he was just mean, oh, God of the Old Testament that I had to perform for. And if I wasn't performing, if I wasn't doing well, then I couldn't be right. But God was not, yes, he was all those things. And yes, there are things that he expects of us. But now I started to experience that God was a father. That he was a father as well. And that even in this time when I was a hot mess, Donna tell you, she know, whew, she seen me in my best and my worst. <laughs> you know, a hot, hot mess. He was still a dad sitting on the couch wanting me to come sit on his lap 
wanting to make everything go better. Even when I would run, even when I was doing things that I had no business doing, even when I was tore up, he was still just a dad that was reaching out and he loved me even when I was doing things that people, everybody said, oh no, you can't go to church like that. God doesn't love you. You going to hell. I heard a thousand stories of what other people were telling me God was like, but there was this little whisper in my ear that God was saying, listen, I'm trying to talk to you. It ain't about what other people are saying. It ain't about what they're trying to get you to understand. I'm trying to connect with you here. And so I had to experience that God was bigger. He was bigger than what I thought he was. How I'll be spending New Year's. I think that's the way God is going to be tonight at about 1159. When people all around these churches are gathering in and they're saying, God's about to do a new thing. God's about to do this. God's about, and God is sitting up there. Yes, Gabriel, bring my blanket. Yes. <laughs> Tap me when this is over. <laughs> God is bigger than the view that we have of him. He is not this ATM machine that is just sitting there waiting for the year to change. God allows Israel to go through this because God is trying to be something different to them. God wanted them to understand that, yes, I am the deliverer out of the hand of Israel, but I am also the provider while you're in the wilderness. He wanted them to understand that I am the provider in the wilderness, but I'm also the healer when you get to the other side. He wanted them to know that I'm the healer when you get to the other side, but I'm also the warrior that can handle the people that are in the land that you didn't think that you could get to. What is God trying to get you to understand? See, I had to expand my view of God even then because he let me rest in that good, good father. I was singing it every day. was blasting in my car. I am a child of God. I'm doing all this. But then he had to also understand that not only is he dad, but he's Lord. See, there's jurisdictional changes from father. See, I love my father. I respect my father, but let him come over to my place and say something like, you know, I don't like this couch. I think you should change it. I would say something along the lines of, that's unfortunate, <laughs> you know, but I wouldn't change it. <laughs> you know, you know I, I love my aunts. I love people. Let them, you know, if I meet someone, I fall in love and they just don't approve, I would say, I'm sorry, <laughs> you know, still love them, still respect them, still dad, mom, grandma, aunt. But there's jurisdictional duties. I would say if God is just father to you, you need to adjust your expectations of God. Because God is not only just father, but he is also Lord. And what Lord means is that he can come into your house and say, I don't like this. This needs to go. What Lord means is that he can come in and say, look, I know you want to get to the other place. You're trying to get to the promised land, but I got different plans and thoughts for you. You got to understand that if God is Lord, then that means that he can speak and he has total jurisdiction. But not only is, but, but if God is love and God is powerful, then doesn't God want me to find success in 2018? Well, he's not just all, has the opportunity to provide, but he's also all wise. You might not be able to handle that car that you claiming in 2018. Let's be real. 
Doesn't God want me to be successful? Yeah, okay, but you might not be in a place where you can handle that job that you claiming in 2018. And so while you up here claiming and you're going to come in here tonight talking about all the things that God's about to do, God's about to do a new thing, and God is saying, I'm not doing anything new while you're still in the same old place that you've been in for 10 years. Everybody coming in here talking about so new year, new me. I want y'all to come in here and I just want you to walk back. Now detector test said that was a lie. <laughs> you can't fool God. God was less interested in this whole nation of people just getting to a new place physically. There was something that he was trying to teach them. God has expanded more than our view of him, our very limited view. He's painting with a broader picture. He's painting with a broader brush. This is really important for me to understand. Because I, I hit this spot, you know, the last few years in my ministry where I'm trying to do ministry with people who are having different experiences than I am. You know, I, I've been to the charismatic churches. I've been where you lay it out and it's like a formula where if you come and you, and you praise real hard and you have this amount of faith and you give this amount of tithes, God is just going to show up and everything in your life is going to be okay. But then you try to reconcile that with people who are showing up, who do have faith, who are giving all their money, and stuff still doesn't work out. And so now, just like the children of Israel, we try to rationalize. Maybe you heard wrong. Well, well, maybe you just didn't have it. Did you really have faith? You know, we start, there's some churchisms again. Did you really have faith? Well, you tithe, but did you give offerings? Just because you have to give 10%, maybe you should have given 20. Oh, shoot. I got caught up in that. I remember the first time I gave the church Money that I did not have to give. <laughs> but I heard all these stories, you know. Listen, I didn't know where my next check was coming from. I didn't know where this was. But you know what? I stepped out in faith. I gave it. And all of a sudden, my business took off. Stuff showed up in the mail. I said, hey, sign me up. <laughs> Wrote it down. Gave it. Bank account on hit. Ne uh, negative. <laughs> Insufficient fund fees <laughs> popping in. Business ain't taking off. So what? As you do, I tried it again. <laughs> I need to give more. I need to do this. I need to do that. And I'm thinking, surely God wants me to have money. Surely God wants me to have this nice job. Surely God is trying to take me to a different place. And I realized that I had to adjust my expectations of God and the expectations that he had of me. Yes, sir. See, the reality is there are promises in the Bible. The reality is God does own the cattle on a thousand hills. He does say you're the head and not the tail. He does say that you're a royal priesthood. He does say all of these great and wonderful and marvelous things about you. But the other reality is that God is playing for a much bigger story than what you and I can see. And people don't like to hear that. As a matter of fact, I didn't really understand that and I've been in church, raised in church, preaching around for 10 years. I didn't really understand this until this year. Until I read something that made me go, hmm. See, the, the fact of the matter is, especially in this year of Facebook, 
you know, our, our own news feeds, we think that we're the star of our own lives. And, and it's true. You only ever see from your vantage point, you, ever, you only ever know your experiences. And, and because of what you thought, because of this Christian faith that we have, we really believe that God is supposed to be setting up all of this stuff, that when people close the book on our life, is going to end with happily ever after on this side. And because we were such great Christians and because we showed up, sickness left our body and our businesses took off and we drove the nice car and we had the nice things and we did all of that. But I came to tell you that God is not necessarily interested in all of those things. All of those things are nice if you can have them, but the truth of the matter is that is not going to be everybody's story. As a matter of fact, your story is not your story. See, we go to Sunday school and we hear these things and we hear the story of Jonah, the story of Moses, the story of the three Hebrew boys, the story of Jesus, the story of Paul, the story of all these other people. But I came to tell you that God has been writing one single story and it's all his. And the only reason we are here is to point back and reflect him and to give him glory. And if we're going to give him glory, then that means somebody has to be in the wilderness only receiving manna so that we can give God glory for being a provider. That means somebody has to get sick so that we can know that God is a provider, that he is also a healer. That means that somebody has to play the role of the person who unfortunately dies way too soon, we think, just so we know that God can comfort that mother, that God can put his arms around her, so he is painting a much bigger story. See, when you subscribe to this very Western-style faith that says that just because you come in here, just because you tithe, just because you do all these think that God is all of a sudden going to bless you and take you higher and he's going to do all this stuff in 2018? How does that reconcile with the people over in China who really love the Lord, who have faith that you and I have never seen, but they die in every single day and they have to worship in silence and they have to worship in secret, but they serve the same God. He's writing a story that's bigger than you and I. The fact of the matter is, you are a tree in a story about a forest. You are just a tree in a story about a forest. So imagine Israel heard the promise. God told them that he was going to take them into a new place. He told them he was going to take them into the promised land. And he is not a God that he should lie. But every single person that heard the promise, except for two, didn't even make it. Story of Moses. Moses didn't even make it. I'm only telling you this because I don't want you to come in here tonight thinking that God owes you something just because the clock. Just because the clock is about to go from seven to eight. That God is about to do something great, spectacular, because 2018 is your year. But what would be lovely is if you came here tonight and said, God, I'm yours. 
If you came here tonight and said, God, you write my story. Because more than having the fancy things, more than having the accolades, more than having all of this, but to know that I get to be a part of something bigger. To know that I get to be a part of a story that God has been writing for eternity. Something that transcends me. Oh, don't get me wrong. It would be nice to have the car. It would be nice to have the cash. It would be nice to have the house. But all of those things are going to perish when I die. But if I can be a part of something. If I can be a part of something that's bigger than me, that's bigger than you, that transcends what I have to do. Imagine Dr. King having this very Western view of who God was supposed to be. And just because he had faith and just because he preached and just because he gave his tithes and offerings, God was just supposed to bless him when he walked into the new year. And he was just supposed to have all this stuff. He didn't get a new house. He got his house bombed. He didn't get all this extra stuff. He had people coming after his family. He was thrown in jail. He, you don't have to go read about Paul and Silas in the Bible. We got modern day people that we can read about where God is using them and he's doing a new thing. He actually had to lay down his life and die for the thing in the story that God was writing with him. But in a couple of weeks, years after his death, what do we celebrate? Martin Luther King Day. I'm just so excited to be a part of something that is bigger than me. So I'm understanding, and it's hard for me to understand. I do pray for success. You know, I run a business. You know, and, and I've watched this thing transform, and I've watched this thing morph. And, you know, this past summer, we celebrated five years, and while other people were like, oh, my God, wow, you did it. Like, you guys have been around five years. Like, that's pretty great. I had this, like, moment of what the heck am I doing? Because when I started it, I had a very clear picture in my mind of what it was going to be. And, you know, along the way, you know, other things started happening. And then you get like, oh, you're really good with kids. People will actually pay you to watch them. Like, oh, that's pretty cool. So now you start to add this sort of thing. And so at a point, I'm serving like 100 or close to 100 people at one point. Money is coming in. This is nice. But then... I'm not feeling that same sort of like, I want to come to this place. I want to be here. I want to be doing this. And so other people are looking and they're like, wow, you're being really successful. This is awesome. And I'm not happy. And so what happens is we approach this five-year mark and this five-year milestone and people are like expecting things to get bigger and people are expecting you to now do something more than what you're doing. What I started doing was the exact opposite and actually throwing away everything that I learned in business, asking clients to leave. We're no longer doing this service. So 70 kids became 30 pretty much overnight. And even in that time, still not really getting to the spot, not really working in purpose, 30 kids became 15. And people now, the phone calls are starting to come. Now other people are like, David, are you okay? <laughs> you do realize that the whole point of a business is to make money and you're just letting it walk out the door. 15 kids become 12. Work with 12 kids this past summer. That became only inviting nine people back only until we get down to the five people you see in this picture. From almost 100 down to five. 
Now, what you also see is not just revolution dance, but this new thing called black, brown, and ballet, which is something that we weren't doing. See, at this point, you know, I wanted to do dance. I wanted to do all of this stuff, but there was no really driving force behind it. It was just like, hey, we can teach kids to dance. That's pretty cool. And then when you find out that people will pay for you to watch your kids, you're like, hey, you can come even if you don't dance. That's fine, you know, but I'll watch kids, <laughs> you know? And so it was all this. And so what it became was a daycare center. Listen, I love the children. I really don't like daycare. And it took five years for me to realize I don't like watching other people's kids, <laughs> you know? And so why am I doing this? And then like even narrowing down to like, hey, we want these people to dance. But you know, I was starting to make this name for myself as like somebody who put out excellence, somebody who did good work. And then I'm watching these shows like start to happen. And you've got all these people on stage. We did this one show at the Aronoff Center. And you know, the guy who worked there, he was like, I've never seen something like this. <laughs> and it was not a good thing what he was saying. <laughs> and I remember like, Right there in the middle of the show, people are paid, they're out there seeing it, we're at this prestigious place, I'm running around chasing kids in the back. I said, never again. <laughs> we need some degree of excellence, and then we're not gonna have excellence unless these kids start to get technique, so now we're gonna give them ballet. And then people hear the word ballet, and then that number chops down again. <laughs> people didn't wanna do it. And then, I'm in the shower, kid you not, too much information, you know, and all of a sudden, it hits black, brown, and ballet. I had no idea where that came from. I'm just like, OK, go on. <laughs> you know? And I didn't know what that meant. And then I heard it again, black, brown, and ballet. Black, brown, and ballet. And I start doing like my little Google searches. You know, Did I hear this somewhere? Does this exist? OK, no, that doesn't mean. And then I'm getting all these statistics in my search, and I'm starting to hear. Did you know, you know we're known for our artistic ability as black people. <laughs> you know, if I told you black people can dance, you would not be like surprised. But in America, more Americans can say that they've actually been to the moon than African Americans can say that they've been promoted to a principal dancer in an American ballet company. Did you know that this year, going into 2018, Cincinnati Ballet made national news just because they had one black girl dancing the lead role of Clara. In 2018, this is news, national news, because this 12-year-old black girl got to dance in their show. That in 2018, we know the name Misty Copeland, and she's done like really great and amazing things but she will be the first to tell you, I'm grateful for the fame, but guys, this is ridiculous. It's 2018, I can't be the only one. And so I'm like, okay, is it that we don't want to do it? And so I'm doing more statistics, I'm digging down. And there's this whole like, slew of people who actually do want to do the thing, but for 300 years, it has been this literal thought in the ballet industry that African Americans cannot do it. Simply, like, actually can't do it because our body type is what they say. And then if you have the body type, you don't have the aesthetic because everything has to be uniformed. And how can everything be uniform when my eye sees all this pale and then all of a sudden you see this, this dark? And so now I'm looking at kids that actually want to do a thing and want to break into something that the actual industry that they're trying to do it, they don't see anybody who looks like them. 
and the people leading the industry actually look at them and tell them, no. You can go dance for an African company. You can go do modern dance, and modern dance is beautiful, Alvin Ailey, look at them, successful. But I thought how crazy it is that in 2018, we look at a whole segment of people and tell them no. And so now I'm starting to realize, maybe I can do something that is more on purpose. It's not supposed to be a childcare industry. It's not supposed to be dancing for the sake of dancing. But now what we're gonna do is we're gonna do what we have to do to build the bridges necessary and to break down the barriers so that we can take this group of kids that want this so bad and we can tell them you're gonna be the ones to change the entire face of an entire industry. This idea started earlier, just a couple of months ago, and I've already received phone calls from people all the way over on the West Coast, people wanting to work with us in New York City, people wanting to work with us in Texas, just because they believe, and we are the only organization doing what we are doing in 2018. Now, even though I'm only going to work right now for five people, now I'm going in like, oh baby, we got something that we need to do. Why? Because now I realize that I'm working on purpose. It wasn't supposed to be my story that when you see me, you see me with a hundred and something people trailing behind me like, oh David, it looks good, look at the accolades. It was not necessarily supposed to be my story that the tuition dollars are hitting about $100,000 each year. You know, tuition dollars change when you go from almost 100 people down to just five. But at least when I know I'm working with these five, I'm working on something that is going to transcend me. And even when I'm done, even when I'm dead and gone, if one of these people goes on to be successful in an industry that told them that they are doing the very thing that they couldn't do my work is complete what is God trying to do in you stop asking him for the sexy stop trying to ask him for the things that look good to other people stop trying to ask him only for material things stop trying to ask him to take you to a new place in 2018 but maybe come in here tonight and say God change my mind come in here tonight and say God give me a purpose Come in here at night and say, God, give me something that I can get up every day for. Give me something that I want to get up and run to work for. Give me something that I'm excited about. Adjust your expectations. So 2018 can be your year. That's what you wanted to hear today. I'll give it to you. 2018 can be your year. But only if you position yourself to give him glory and do the thing and the work that he calls you to do. Happy New Year. Yeah. <laughs>